Good evening. How are you? It's good to see you. So today I'll be uh, preaching out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you're able to stand with me as we read through God's word, <clears throat> that would be great. I'm reading out of the ESV, so it might be a little bit different. But it reads like this. <clears throat> and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you so much again for this evening, for this day, Lord, that we can gather together and think through this, Lord, your word. Father, I pray that you would... Uh, Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds to think of this, this doctrine, Lord, of you saving us, Lord, while we were still sinners, while we were dead. You made us alive because of your mercy, Lord. Um, help us not just pass over it as the gospel is not just the entryway into our life, but the gospel is everything. It's the good news, Lord, for sinners and the good news for everybody, Lord. And so I pray, Father, that you would uh, fill me with your spirit, Lord, that I would speak your words, Lord. And I pray, the Lord, that we would all uh, just be able to Fathom in the great mystery of what you've done, Lord, and just rejoice and praise you, Lord, all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I like you, man. Sometimes. No, I'm just joking. I like you. <laughs> no, you made me <laughs> you made me think of uh we were at a at a wedding. <laughs> you may be seated now, dearly beloved. All right. So with, with a sermon like this, the, the application is going to be a little bit different in that uh, it's not telling us a lot of what to do, at least right now. It's going to be a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it mental gymnastics, but I do want to think of kind of contemplating the concepts that are there, where we were and where we're going. The title of the message is From Death to Life. So from death to life. That's where we were, and God brought us to life. And so let's keep that in mind. Sometimes we're ready to hear, uh, I want to do this, I want to do that. But sometimes there's the why first before the what do we do next. So a lot of this is going to be the why of where we were and where God is taking us. <clears throat> so in terms of our, our uh, passage here, the main idea here is going to be that we were dead in sins, but we were saved by grace. We were dead in sins, but God saved us by his grace. That's the main point of the issue here. And so just to begin, think with me that you can't receive good news unless you have bad news. You can receive it, but you won't appreciate it. You need to know the bad news before you can receive and appreciate the bad news. So let me give you a, kind of a thought. Bad news without good news leads to hopelessness. Bad news without good news leads to hopelessness. Good news without bad news rots the bones. Good news without bad news rots the bones, but bad news followed by good news brings inexpressible joy. Bad news followed by good news brings joy inexpressible. You see, it is only when you understand the bad news <clears throat> that it is that you can truly appreciate the good news, as I just said. Let me illustrate for a moment. 
Let's say that I bought you a gift. Thomas is not here. I was going to say, Thomas, I bought you a gift. But if you're listening online, Thomas, this gift is for you. So let's say I bought you this gift, Thomas. And I wrapped it and I gave it to you. And you ask me, what is this? And I tell you, open it. And so you proceed to open it. And when you see it, it's a parachute. And your smile turns upside down. And you say, what in the world did you give me this for? By the looks of your face, you're not happy. Right? You tell me, what's this for? I don't, I don't skydive. My back hurts. And I'm, planning on, I'm not planning on traveling by air anytime soon. <clears throat> so obviously, you can't appreciate the gift in these circumstances, right? But let's say that two months later, you book a, you book a flight. But it's not a regular flight. It's a Cessna, four-seater Cessna. And so you're up there, and all of a sudden, the pilot gets a heart attack and just croaks. And all of a sudden, instead of flying horizontal, you're flying vertical now, and there's no way to get out, and you don't know how to fly the aircraft. But you remembered to pack your parachute. And so you put it on, and it's bad news that you're going down, right? It's really bad news. But good news is that you got the parachute. Hopefully, you don't forget to pull the cord, but he doesn't. He pulls the cord, and he starts gliding. And all of a sudden, he starts making it safe to where he needs to go. At that moment in time... You can appreciate the parachute, the gift, as a good news because you needed it and you knew your circumstances. You were going down and you were going down fast. And unless you had the parachute and unless you couldn't get out, you're done. You're toast, right? So you can appreciate the good news when you are in the circumstances and understand the bad news. And this is what uh, Paul does at the beginning of the second chapter of the Epistle of Ephesians. See, in, in chapter one of Ephesians, Uh, Paul's given us a grand, grand statement. He's praising God at the beginning of his letter, and he's basically thanking God for all the blessings that we have. He tells him what you have now. He's just going off. He's just telling us all these good things. In Christ, God predestined us to adoption. In love, he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. And he tells us that we were seated with him in the heavenlies. But then, in chapter 2, he takes it back. And I think he's doing this to remind the Ephesians, because remember in Acts chapter 19, the Ephesians, uh, it was a place of a lot of, uh, it was affluent. They they had the temple of Artemis, or they would call it the temple of Diana. So there was a lot of money. The artisans would do that. And then it was a place that was heavily practicing witchcraft and sorcery. And so you remember in in chapter 19 where they end up, there's a riot. They end up getting rid of the, the, (coughs) sorry about that. They end up getting rid of a lot of the, the, um, the idols, and then they burn the parchments and the magic scrolls. And there was a, the temple of Artemis was where they practiced prostitution. It, it, was a, it was a temple cult in that sense. And so there was a lot of stuff going on. And so they had they practiced magic. And so Paul's going to bring him back to this notion of heavenlies. And you'll see throughout the passages in chapter 6, in chapter 2, and even in, ch- in the other chapters in between, mentioning the spirits and Satan. And so Paul's taking them through this to remind them, but it takes them back to where they were. Because it's essential, again, like I said, to know the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. So in verse 1 and through verse 3, this is normally taken as a unit because all three are talking about the same idea. He's expanding upon it, and he's talking about the predicament. So the idea is that the Ephesians were in a state of death. So to them, he's writing to them, they were Gentiles, they were in a state of death, But it's applicable to us because if we're not in Christ, if we're in Adam, we're in a state of death as well. So let's take a closer look to see what the Apostle Paul is referring to. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In what manner were they dead? They were dead metaphysically speaking. 
because they were walking around. I say metaphysically, or not metaphysically, metaphorically speaking, because this death that Paul speaks about points beyond physical death, as we would normally understand death to mean. Now, we know that we're going to die someday. To live in this mortal body is to someday die. We know that. But that's not what Paul is talking about here, even though that is a consequence of sin. He's talking about something else. That's why it's a metaphor. It's pointing to something beyond itself. This kind of death is that kind that is characterized by a separation and alienation from the blessed, life-giving presence of God. Think about that. It's separation and alienation from the blessed, life-giving presence of God. Where God is, life is. God is a source of life. In the presence of God is our pleasures forevermore. God is the source and the fountain of life. So in the absence of his presence, there is decay and death and corruption. So we'll see that that's what he's pointing to. So think with me and let's go a little bit back to the book of beginnings, to Genesis. Now, do you recall what God told Adam concerning the trees in the garden? I say trees in the plural because I'm not just talking about one, but most of them. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we know what follows from this, right? What do they do? Adam and Eve decide to disobey God. They end up eating, and they end up sinning against God. So the nature of sin, we throw the word around a lot, but the nature of sin is to disobey God. And we disobey God and obey our sinful desires. We disobey God and obey our sinful desires. So simply stated, sin means to disobey God by what you think, by what you do, by what you say, by what you don't do. So omission, commission. You sin by committing acts against God, or you sin by not doing what God has called you to do. So then sin leads to death. This is why God said that the day that you disobeyed him, the day that he's disobeyed, you would surely die. Now the Apostle Paul captures this well when he wrote, the wages of sin is death. Simple enough, right? The wages of sin is death. Or in the words of James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, there's that connection between sin, disobedience, and death. But Adam and Eve didn't die on the spot, though. That's the thing that's interesting, because when we hear that, we're like, well, surely there's a contradiction in the Bible, because it didn't die. He said it was going to die, but they didn't die. But... This is not a contradiction. This is evidence of God's mercy, even at the beginning when Adam and Eve had sinned. It's evidence of his mercy amidst and in the midst of his justice. How do we make sense that they're supposed to die, but they don't die on the spot? Well, as we will read, sin, like I said, as we read, sin gives birth to death. It was only a matter of time until death entered the world. Right? We know that Adam and Eve, or Adam doesn't die for hundreds of years, but sin is very close, and then death proceeds very quickly. The sad thing is that while we don't see Adam and Eve die right away, physically, we do see them die spiritually. And as a result of this, the children that they birth end up being sinners. And so we see how we see the first instance of death amongst the image God bears when Cain murders his younger brother Abel. Right from the get-go, in the family there is sin and death, pain and suffering. But in another sense, Adam and Eve did die. Like I said ago, a while ago, they died spiritually. And we see how God drove them out of the garden never to enter from, not, <coughs> sorry, never to enter or eat from the tree of life. And that's why I said a while ago that this death is spiritual in nature 
And the idea here is that you're separated from the blessed presence of God. He is the life giver, the source of life. And so to be away from his presence is to be alienated from God, separated from the blessed presence of God. An image that may be helpful from the New Testament that comes to mind and to the lips of Jesus in his parable is when he tells us a story or the parable of the prodigal son, in which the son dishonors the father by treating him as if he's dead, right? When he asks for the share of the inheritance, he's essentially saying, I'm going to treat you as you're dead, so give me what's mine. So all of a sudden there's disobedience, there is uh, dishonoring, so he leaves the father's blessed presence, if you will, where there is everything that he needs, acceptance, provision, everything that he could need is there, but he lives and he squanders his life in sin and sinful living. So the father's words, though, when he comes back are very insightful because he says the following, listen to his words, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's in Luke 15, 24. You see, he was dead and he was lost. And it's the same thing like with us. And with Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the garden, they were lost, they were no longer home, and they were dead in sin and trespasses. So that, my brothers and sisters, is what Paul is telling us. We're separated from God. We're lost. Not only that, we're hostile towards God now. When you're away from God, you're hostile. You hate God. You're a natural man. There's no spiritual life in you. Curved in. So we were living life as if we were autonomous, but that's a contradiction of terms. You can't be a law unto yourself. It leads to anarchy. It leads to chaos. It leads to suicide. It's death, and death is unsustainable. You cannot live like that. So as a result of this spiritual death, we see that both spiritual and physical death entered the world. And it spread to all because all sinned and because all are in Adam, right? We're organically connected to Adam, hence physical sin, physical death, I'm sorry, and the sins that we commit. We don't become sinners when we sin. Rather, we sin because we're born sinners. And that's very important to understand because many times we tend to think of sin as merely actions that you commit, commission or omission. But the thing is that the sin is something that affects us. It's a condition that affects us deeply, that affects and extends to every aspect of who we are and what we are. I'll get more to that here shortly, but <clears throat> some may say, though, but how is it fair that I'm born in sin? I wasn't there. I'm sorry to tell you that it is what it is. I mean, it is what it is. We can't, this is what you got, this is what we got to work with. The fact is that God provided, and that's very important. Given, now I'm going to go here this route, in that why is it that we, because we're born um, in lineage, have sin? It's because like produces like. Kind produces after its own kind. It's always the case. Right? I'm Mexican. My wife is part Nicaraguan and part something else. We're not going to produce a Caucasian baby. We're going to have a Mexican slash Nicaraguan baby. Like produces like. Dogs, when they have babies, have puppies. Cats produce cats. So you produce according to your kind. And in this case, Adam and Eve had sinned and became sinners, so they're going to have sinful babies. They have to. That's the way it goes. We're in Adam. We come from that lineage. Adam is our head. He represents us. And apart from Christ, we're in Adam. So we reproduce according to our nature. This is what we are. Sinners have sinful babies. So everyone after Adam and Eve, the progeny, would always be sinners by birth. Because of sin... 
and sinners dead on arrival. Again, dead on arrival because they're sinners. And this is exactly what David tells us in Psalm 51.5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Before he committed any sin, he was already born a sinner. As a result of being conceived in sin, David sinned. He goes on to say, Look, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So his sinful condition led to his sinning. And because he's a sinner and sins, therefore he's justly condemned. So there's no way around it. All are born in sin. All are justly condemned. All are dead in trespasses and sins. <clears throat> now Amanda and I, a few days ago, we were talking about this. What, what kind of an image can we think about to think about these who are dead? And she told me, how about zombies? I think, yeah, zombies is kind of cool. Think about it like zombies, the living, the walking dead. That's essentially what's happening here, right? The walking dead. You're walking, but you're dead in a sense, a real sense. You're alive physically, but you're dead away from the presence of God. That's why they're simultaneously dead and alive. And the dead walk a certain way. They have certain characteristics about their walk. And that's what Paul is going to tell us in, chapter, in verse 2, I should say. When Paul uses the notion of walking, he's using a Hebraic expression, a Hebrew expression, which denotes a certain style of life, a perspective on life, a certain way of conduct, according to the covenant, which connects with obedience or disobedience. It's always the case, obedience or disobedience. Either you obey God or disobey God. In obeying God, you show yourself to be son of God. If you disobey God, you show to be yourself a son of the devil. It's only obedience or disobedience. You can't go both ways. <clears throat> so Paul tells us that their walk reveals who they are and whose they are. Who they are and whose they are. Remember when Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. He was talking about false prophets. But it's the same case too when you look at another Christian. If they proclaim or profess to be Christians but they don't live like a Christian, then you, you're justified in saying, well, are they really saved? I mean, you can't condemn them. You can't say they're saved in that sense. But the evidence is there in front of you. It gives you an idea, well, that person's not living like a Christian. So the fruit, the walk, tells you what they are. There may be valleys up and down, I understand that. But you don't live a life of sin. That's the difference right there. Now, the dead don't produce fruit. And if they do produce fruit, it's rotten, good for nothing, it's useless, it's putrid. Their walk reveals that they're influenced by the world. That's what Paul was talking about when he referred to walk. So elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul tells us how they used to walk. And this is a walk, and it points to the past, but there's nothing new. We walk in the same way now. Human behavior, human sin is always the same. We struggle with the same thing, right? He says this, he tells us they used to be sexually immoral, impure, covetous, idolaters, used filthy talk, joked crudely, they were drunks, they were greedy, they were thieves, etc. The list goes on. That is the way in which they walked. And it's on account of these things, Paul says, that the wrath of God is coming now, as he says in Romans chapter 1, and in the future, as he says in Romans chapter 2 verse 5. No one lives, <coughs> no one who lives this way will have any inheritance in heaven. And again, it shows that they're not truly saved. They love the world system. That's what Paul is talking about and John talks about. Don't love the world. If they're influenced by the world, it's not so much the world itself, but the world system, that which is diametrically opposed 
to God and his purposes and his design. In contradistinction, the Apostle John said this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this is how Paul is characterizing their formal walk of the Ephesians. This is how they used to walk. And if you think about it, our B.C. days, my professor used to say my B.C. days, my before Christ days, he said, uh, that's, how I, that's how we used to walk. And that's true of all of us. That's who we were. Remember the were. That's what Paul is trying to get us at. That's who you were. <clears throat> so they looked like the world, and they were influenced by the world. This world, or the world system, is diametrically opposed, like I said, to God and his purposes. Look what Paul says in Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Paul then continues in 6. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it, is, does, not submit, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those that are in the flesh cannot please God. So this is who we were. God-haters, influenced by the world. This is where we were, and this is where the world was. Now, if we step out of that time period and in the text and come into our time period, we will see that Christians are persecuted in other areas of the world. Why? Because the world hates the things of God and the people of God. There are concepts that we're dealing with right now in society, in school, the redefinition of human sexuality, redefinition of marriage, The list goes on. I mean, we could just think of those things that are happening. These things, the world is against God and his purposes. And this is the way we used to live. And this is where the Ephesians were, living in that manner. Moreover, why were they living in that manner? Well, they were sinners. They were influenced from within, but they were also influenced from without. It says that they were led by the prince of the power of the air. Now, the prince is none other than Satan, the prince of the air, and the demons who influence. The spirit is at work in the sense of disobedience. You see there, there's the other Hebraic expression, sons of disobedience. In the same way that you would think of uh, the sons of Zebedee as, thank you, the sons of thunder. Let me call down thunder that it may fall upon them, right? This is a Hebraic expression. And it's interesting because this Hebraic expression, in the same way that it was talking about walking, the sons of obedience, disobedience, demonstrated who they were, what their life was about, and whose they were. So it's interesting that Paul does that. So this is how Paul describes those who were dead in sins and trespasses, the sons of disobedience. They can do no other but to disobey God's commands because, again, they're dead in sin. And a sinner cannot do anything that is pleasing to God. It says cannot because they will not. And Pastor, uh, Pastor uh, Brian touched on this last week, but I think we should touch on it again. The idea here is that you're not forced to do something against your nature. The sinful nature is hostile towards God. We read that in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and on. It cannot because it will not. It hates God. It's hostile towards God. It can't do anything pleasing to God. That's where we were. That's why it's so utterly important that we need God to get us out of this death. And to bring us to life. And this is what Paul is leading us towards. This is nothing, nothing more than the gospel. The grand 
mystery hidden before all ages in which both Jew and Gentile can participate. That is what Paul is going towards. He's not there yet, though. But to make sure that the Ephesians, who happen to be Galatians, are not feeling isolated or alone, he throws the Jews into the mix, too. He says, not just them, us, too. In verse 3, Paul wrote, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So he throws himself in as well. This is who we were, all of us, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see? So he's talking about how sin has infected, affected, and corrupted the entirety of human nature. That's where the doctrine of depravity comes from, right? Radical depravity, if you will. Not that you're as evil or sinful as you could be, but the sin, like cancer, has metastasized to every aspect of the body that it renders it defective. It's no longer functioning as it should. And it takes nothing much, it takes more than effort. You can't do it. It takes a divine, supernatural work. It takes a miracle of God to change that and to take it away. Here Paul is demonstrating that Jews and Gentiles alike, that is, all humanity were dead in sins and trespasses. No one is exempt. As he wrote in Romans 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, remember, there were only two types of people, right? Makes me think, I'm going to kind of side for now, but uh, we were watching my big fat Greek wedding, and uh, you know, remember what he says, there are only two types of people in the world, those who are Greek and those who wish they were Greek. In this case, no, there was Jews and there were Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, and we're all Gentiles, and thank God that uh, the gospel has come to us, right? Because we're Gentiles, we're not Jews. I mean, except for one. <laughs> but this Jew has been brought in too, so that's good. All right, so he says, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Greeks, uh, Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And because of this, the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness, and it is being stored up for the day of wrath, that is, the day of judgment. So you see how Paul speaks of sin? He, has, he, he applies it to every aspect of what we are as a human. There's no way to please God, like I said. Our desires, our minds, everything. If we're in Adam, we are children of disobedience, children of the devil, and therefore children of wrath. If you're a child of disobedience, what do you inherit? Wrath. If you're a child of obedience, what do you inherit? Grace and mercy. So there's a lot of bad news right now. I know, I'm sorry that I'm giving you so much bad news, but you've got to understand the bad news. I gotta, we just got to think of this. This is where we came from. This is the human predicament in Adam. This is terrible news. This is where we were. The judgment is well-deserved and fitting for haters of God. This is what we deserve as sinners. If we're in Adam, this is what we deserve. For anyone in Adam, there is no hope. Is there anything that can be expected? No. Only wrath judgment, condemnation. Now, Paul has painted a sad state of affairs. It's bad news. It's all bad news. And this brings us to the fork in the road in verse 4. And here's where we see a change. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So here's the whole kicker here. Now, Paul has been leading us by giving us the bad news. And now he says, here comes the good news. So he takes some, again, remember, 
in chapter 1, with all the blessings, praising and adoring, everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us because we're in Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's a done deal. And then again, Paul, just so you don't forget, let me take you back from where you were. Let me take you to chapter 2. And that's where he gives us the bad news. And now again, he brings them back up. It almost makes me think of dunking them in the water. Come back, come back, come back, come up. But obviously he wouldn't do that, right? But it makes me think of what he's doing back and forth like this. But here it is again, because he's going to connect this, again, if you think about it, with chapter 1, where he's talking about how glorious God is, how blessed God is, and how he's praising God. He brings it back to this, and he says, but God being rich in mercy. This conjunction, but, tells us that there's something happening, and it's taking us in a different trajectory. The only one who could intervene was God. We were dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. I was in the ER yesterday, and, and you know, dead people can't move. It's unfortunate, but they cannot move unless from the outside they receive help. God is the offended party. He is the giver of life. He is a creator. He is just, merciful, gracious, and loving. God alone is the one who provides a ray of hope, not us. Remember, we're hopeless and helpless. My brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the good news. The, the logic of the gospel, though, is contrary to human understanding. Apart from Christ, it is not what we would do or nor what we do. We, like the world, would probably say something like this. If they want forgiveness, they must come to me and beg for it, and they must earn it. But that's not mercy. That's not forgiveness. That's justice. It was because of God's great love that he made us alive with Christ. Now, you have to understand, he mentions mercy. Mercy is huge. You cannot put God's attribute over each other. All of his attributes are infinite. God is one. And all of his attributes, he is his attributes. So we can't elevate one or the other. That's where problems come. When we try to lift up his love over his justice or his justice over his love, you have problems both ways, but you have to hold them equally balanced because they're infinite. God didn't have to save us. That's why it says he was merciful towards us. He exercised mercy. Now, in thinking about God's attributes, think with me very carefully at least about two attributes. One of them is the attribute of justice or holiness. God is holy by nature. So there are two types of attributes at least, at least that I'm going to talk about. The attributes of justice, uh, the attributes of nature, and the attributes of volition. The attributes of nature mean that God operates in this way because that's what he does naturally all the time. That's what happens. He has to do this. And one of those is that he cannot lie. He's not going to change his mind and lie. The other one is, again, like I said, justice, right? God is just and holy. He can't be unjust. He's always just. For him to be a good judge, the judge of the world, who will always do right, he has to be just. So therefore, he has to do that. And he's not obligated. It is who he is. It just comes out of him. Now, the attribute of mercy is very important, very interesting, because wherever there is justice, at least in the scriptures, there's mercy, and God withholds that which you deserve and I deserve. That's what the notion of mercy is, right? To withhold that which you deserve. And typically it's something negative that's withheld. But the, the attribute of mercy, though, is an attribute of volition, which means God chooses to exercise it when he wants. Not like nature will he will always be just. Hence why Jesus comes and dies on the cross. Someone had to pay. There's no free lunch. Somebody had to pay. The son dies in your place, in my place. Justice is satisfied. But then mercy doesn't give us what we deserve, and you see the great exchange. You see my sin 
and your sin transferred onto Jesus. And it's as if he were a sinner. And his righteousness is transferred to you and me, and we are justified as if we were. And that mercy is that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Rather, he does something else. He's going to give us grace. And we see that grace is the concept that God's kindness, unmerited, that favor, you didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, you, it's not conditioned against, upon anything apart from God himself. There's nothing in you or me that God saw that was, I'm going to save this guy. I'm going to save this girl. I'm going to save these people. There's nothing. We were justly condemned. Sinners, destined to death row. That's what we were. But God pardons us in Christ. So remember that we have his nature in terms of attribute, justice. He will do that always, hence Jesus dies on the cross. But then our sin is placed on him, mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And grace, he gives us something that we didn't ever deserve, but he gives it to us because he wants to give it to us, because he's love. right? And that takes us back to that, that particular passage in chapter 1 where he says this. He says, In love, he predestines us to adoption, to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's interesting that it says adoption as sons. Remember, sons of disobedience. So then what does a son of God do or a daughter of God do? They're supposed to obey. So if we can think of an application then, where we were, we were children of disobedience, children of wrath, but as sons and daughters of God, then our duty is to obey God then. That is how we're supposed to walk. That is what is supposed to characterize our life. That is a new way of living. And think about this. Remember, take us back to verse 2, where it says that they were led or influenced by the spirit, the power, the, the, uh, power that is in the prince of the air. Well, in Romans chapter 8, it tells us that the children of God are led by whom? The spirit. Anybody who has the spirit is, and led by the spirit and follows the spirit is the son of God. But here we see the contradistinction that those who are not children of God are children of the devil, children of wrath, and they obey not God, but the prince of the air. And so we want to see that God's mercy, he chooses to save us nevertheless and extend mercy to us. Again, he doesn't nullify his nature or his just nature, and that's why he provides the son as our substitute. He dies in our place. We needed to be made alive because of our predicament. Our predicament was bad news. We were dead. <clears throat> so because of mercy, we're not getting what we deserve. So Paul has painted a good picture of what we deserve. We already know that. And then Paul tells us that God loved us and he sent the son at the right time. And you see, in connection with this, he says that he made us alive with Christ in chapter 2, right? He says, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. What other passages does this make us think about? Again, his love. It's God's love is demonstrated to us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that we were still sinners. Christ died for us. But it's interesting here that it talks about that we we're made alive with Christ. So what is that talking about? So here it's talking about union with Christ. But the notion of being baptized in Christ's death and raised with Christ. We're united to him by the Spirit. When this happens, this is the nature of salvation. But remember, he makes us alive first. 
How do we become alive? This, this notion of being alive when we were dead is called regeneration. That's the technical theological term, regeneration. To be made alive, to be born again is what is normally translated. It could also be translated born from above. That is a spiritual birth. Remember, like produces like. Flesh produces flesh. The spirit gives life to the spirit. We've been born from above. In the same way that you and I didn't participate in our first birth, we don't participate in our second birth. It is the will of God and the work of God alone. In John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, we read this. It tells us how we were made alive. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now here he's going to tell us how we were born. And this is an interesting, it's reversed, and I'll tell you why right now. It says, Who were born, how? Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of what? But of God. We can't take any credit for it. Now, if you notice there, it says that they were the ones who received him. How did they receive him? Well, they were made born alive first. You can't receive him and accept him unless you're born again. He has to transplant you a new heart. That heart has to be there. So now when he gives you the new heart, you can choose God now. But it's because he gave you that new heart. You see, so when somebody charges and says, well, you know, God forces me against my will. Like, no. Think of two magnets. When you reverse them, they, they're, they're propelling against you. They don't come together, right? This is us in the hostile state. It goes like this. God transplants it, the heart, and changes it. And all of a sudden, you just come now. And you come together. Now you can choose God. Because you freely chose to choose him because he gave you the new heart. And that's the whole idea of irresistible grace. He draws you to himself. He brings you. He makes you alive. You exercise faith. That's what we're going to see in verse 8, which we're not going to go into verse 8. But just to quote it, it says you've been saved by grace through faith. That faith is a part of it. We don't take credit for it. But again, you're saved by grace first. It's the gift. A gift that you and I don't deserve, but it's given to us because of God's love. So this mercy is born out of God's love. Just think of uh, John in his epistle where he says, God is love. It comes from him. We already read in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 that that comes out of him. And this is what Paul is highlighting again in chapter 1, 3 through 18 of Ephesians. But notice again that Paul in these three first verses that we read, he was saying, this is who we were. So he's telling him bad news, but he says were, which is past tense. That's who you were. So don't forget that part. Don't just stay stuck in like, oh, man, yes, that's true. But that's who you were, if that's who you were. Because think of what he says, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is who we were, but God made us alive. God united us to Christ. It is by his grace. It is by his kindness. Now, let's also think about this whole idea of being made alive. The only way we can be made alive is if Jesus resurrected from the dead. Because remember what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says that if Christ is not risen, you're still in your sins. And we should be pitied most among men. So if we're still in our sins, get what? We're, we're still toast. There's no hope. But it is the resurrection, which is the first fruits, not only of the eschatological, the end time resurrection, 
where we will be conformed completely into the image of God, where we will receive our resurrected, glorified bodies, the final manifestation of our adoption, that we are sons of God and daughters of God. But this is the beginning, like I said a while ago, where it tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we have been baptized into Christ's death. When Christ died, we're united to him by the Spirit, and then we're raised with Christ now. So we have resurrection power now. We're with Christ and united to Christ. And I think even along the lines of what Pastor Steve preached this morning, there's no reason why we should be sinning. I mean, God always provides a way out. We're united to Christ. We should be steeped in the scriptures and following the Spirit so that we don't sin against God because he always makes a way out. And we should never use our freedom as a license to sin. So we've been united to Christ. It's because of the resurrection. And even think of uh, the picture of how... (coughs) Forgive me, guys. This cough. I'm not sick anymore, okay? This is residual, so I don't want... <clears throat> he makes us alive. We already talked about the idea of the prodigal son coming back, but think of Lazarus when Jesus goes to Bethany and he speaks the words and Lazarus, being dead, comes alive. That is the picture of that a dead person can't do anything apart from the grace of God, that he himself speaks not only existence into existence, but also speaks and makes a new creation So again, we cannot boast in anything. God did it all. God did this according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glory. There is nothing that we ever did to earn our salvation. There is nothing that God saw in us to say, I choose you. This, again, is God's will, his love, his mercy. This shows the supremacy of his goodness. The heart of God is blessing us with the grace that we don't deserve, but he gives it to us. So we were saved by grace. So as we come to a close, like I said a while ago, there is not a lot of physical application, but it is this, to think about these words. Never forget where God found you, where you came from. Don't stay there, but remember where we were. God called you and me to be among the dead. From among the dead, he called us to live. So we should give thanks to God. We should praise God and adore God for his immeasurable kindness with which he saved us. So therefore, because this is the case, maybe this is a practical application, don't live as we formerly lived, in the lust of the eyes and the pleasures of life, following the prince of the air. Show yourself to be a child of God by pleasing the Father in every good work that you do. So for our closing prayer, I want to take Paul's words as my own here, because I think you can't say it any better. But let's pray. Paul says this in chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.